Well, welcome to Keys to the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we're finishing up Exodus today. We're in Exodus 40, and uh, we uh, went through almost all the books word for word, although some of them, when they're talking about the construction of the tabernacle, and uh, the sewing of garments, etc. We kind of skipped along a little bit more quickly because of the fact that uh, it is so difficult to actually understand the symbolism of building the tabernacle if you haven't got all the other symbolism of Exodus put together. Uh, in the Jordan Peterson uh, Symposium, they continue on into Numbers and even into Deuteronomy, into episodes uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, I think. And trying to, you know, they they don't go chapter by chapter, but they accentuate what they think is helping clarify Exodus. And uh, And we've been following along with their symposium, and hopefully we'll do... Uh, programs specifically dealing with what they seem to be missing because what they seem to be missing is also missing in modern Christianity. It's the Leviathan in the room that everybody seems to just look at and not see. And yet in the text we find an abundance in Old Testament and New Testament you know, where they talk about offerings and sacrifice and charity and free will offerings. And free will offerings are charity. And charity is a free will offering. That's the that's the essence of the definition of charity. And, of course, the early church ran and operated entirely upon charity. And the uh, early Israel operated entirely upon charity. But people don't quite connect the fact that the modern church, modern Judaism, Judaism at the time of Jesus Christ, was not operating solely upon charity, upon free will offerings. They don't make that mental connection. And it is because many of them, many of the participants in modern Christianity and modern Judaism, are on the wrong side of the river. (laughs) They're they're in a a state of confusion and they live in darkness. They're under a strong delusion that somehow or other desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor through men who exercise authority one over the other, even though they call themselves benefactors, is actually the covetous practice spoken of by... uh, Paul as idolatry by Peter as going to make you merchandise as Peter going to curse your children with debt and bring them back into the yoke of bondage and that is and of course now we've written whole books covenants of the gods showing you that that's exactly according to the law what people are doing today According to the law of the Supreme Court, which is the ruling judges of your legal system, and according to, you know, precedent, 
according to maxims of law, that if you derive a benefit, an advantage, that you may suffer the consequences of that benefit. Especially if that benefit is provided by borrowing against somebody else's future, which of course is what they're doing today, right now, in in the legislature of the United States, they're deciding to expand the debt ceiling. Not something they haven't done many, many times before and, and may do a number of times in the future. Not in, indefinitely. There has to come an end to this. But uh, for the time being, they are expanding the debt ceiling which is putting more and more debt upon your children, which is cursing your children. And, of course, a great deal of that debt. Uh, you can go to Open the Books. They've got a lot of different videos out. Uh, and they explain, where where is all this money? Billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. Where is it all going to? What is it doing? You know, they have these emergency aid packages because of COVID. But, of course, the the plague of COVID was not... COVID, we're finding that out now, but it was the shutdown. The shutdown will kill far more people in the long run. It's already killing people, killed many people, uh, directly or indirectly. I mean, suicides just skyrocketed during the shutdown because man is meant to work. We are to work six days <laughs> and, and rest on the seventh. But if you don't work the six days and you borrow for six days against the seventh, you don't get a seventh. <laughs> you don't get a day of rest. And that's one of the principles of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about debt. It's about staying out of debt, about working first. That's how you keep the day holy. That's how you get... Everybody wants a rest now and then. But you, you can't rest if you're borrowing against the future. You're putting yourself into bondage again. I mean, that's what the bondage of Egypt was. Debt. They said, give us food today. (laughs) The the wimpy approach to economy. Give me food today and I will pay for it tomorrow with 20% of my labor. And that's what got you into the bondage of Egypt. And it brought you into the bondage of Egypt, which was the social safety net of Egypt, which is one of the things that came out during Jordan Peterson's symposium, where somebody said they didn't have a social safety net in those days. But the social safety net was Egypt. And Egypt had the provisions to do that because they listened to somebody who was inspired by God and knew things, see things that other people could not see. You know, the Pharaoh couldn't see what was coming. He couldn't interpret his own dream. The dreams come to people sometimes like a, almost a code. And you, you people who have dreams a lot of times are wondering, what does it mean? Well, it's it's like the divine will of God leaking into your mind during <laughs> during sleep. And then you say, well, what, what does that mean? You know, or you could... Uh, look at Scrooge, it might just be a piece of moldy cheese. But the point is, is that sometimes God reveals stuff to us 
this collective consciousness, this divine consciousness of God, this unity of God, this uh, singularity of God, reveals things to people in dreams, sometimes in visions. And sometimes it's just a piece of moldy cheese or schizophrenia or uh, some sort of trauma going on in the individual. And it's difficult to tell sometimes, is he a prophet or a madman? But the reality is, is it, it should be evident to everybody, reading the Old Testament and the New Testament, that these offerings were free will offerings. That Israel was operating its government based on charity. That people chose to give. That there is a term that floats around called votive offering. And I don't, I don't think you find that term. You don't find it in the King James. You may find it in some of the other translations. I'm not sure where they get it. But a, a votive offering was a, a votive deposit. Uh, where somebody gives some sort of object displayed or deposited uh, without the intention of recovering it, and and it's to be used as a sacred in a sacred place as an ornament or just to be there as part of the wealth that is kept in the temple, etc. Depends on what religion we're talking about, but the Jewish re- religion refers to a votive offering. Uh, and I, I don't know again if there's translations where they actually translate it votive offering, but there is a Hebrew word nadar, which is nun delet resh. And they say that's a votive offering. Uh, although like I said, it's not translated that way in the King James. But, uh, the normal word for free will offering is nadab, which is nun delet beit. And so they, they take the bid out and they put a resh in there and supposedly it becomes a votive offering. But it's, it's not quite free will anymore. Now you may have, it's connected a lot of times with the idea of a vow. You, you have vowed to pay an amount or give something. I, I, I'm going to give this thing. It's a vow. And so now it has the letter resh, which has to do with authority. That now you, you are compelled to fulfill that vow because of this naming this offering a Nadar, uh, Nun Delet Resh. But generally speaking, it's always, and of course this, this word is used, uh, in, when we're dealing with Solomon and what Solomon is doing and we know that Solomon also set up tribute and of course that's a forced offering tribute is a forced offering it's not a free will offering it, you, it may be free will because you consented to tribute I mean you could say that the tally of bricks the 20% of your labor that belonged to the pharaoh was a free will offering but it, it was because you consented to the deal you agreed to the deal you said yeah I want the benefit today and I will pay you tomorrow 20% of my labor. But that was the bondage of Egypt. You were entering in the social safety net of Egypt. And then it became oppressive. At first it wasn't so oppressive. It, it was life-saving. 
and you're in this new land, evidently up in Goshen. It's very fertile. Got the Delta River flowing right through it. And uh, they prospered. But then it became oppressive. And there was the leaven of Egypt. The oppression of Egypt. Where through crafts of state somehow or other, that's one translation, it it became more oppressive. And people were actually aborting their children, casting their children, the brephos out, according to the New Testament, the, their fetuses. And uh, they, they had their social safety net. That's why there was granary in the temples. And they had their own priests... You know, because we know Aaron, who knew the arts of the temple. Well, how did he know them? Well, because he was a priest to the Israelites in Egypt and operated the temple of Egypt to make sure that the needy were taken care of. Had some sort of rules, just like you have some sort of rules to take care of the needy in the United States and take care of the needy in Australia, take care of the needy in England. I... I saw uh, a documentary kind of on farming in England. They can't make it without government subsidies. Their farms will collapse. Well, this is because the economy of England is the wimpy economy of England. And wimpy is a character, a Popeye character, who always wanted to you know, borrow a nickel to buy a hamburger today (laughs) and he would pay you back tomorrow. And so I've I've made that kind of a metaphor of the economies that are borrowing against the future to have an economy today. And of course, that's what the Federal Reserve is all about. Increasing the cash flow by creating artificial money that is not that it is something that has no value that is used as money. Originally, it was redeemable and lawful money, but it's no longer redeemable and lawful money. For most people, there might be some redemption, but nobody has, you know, who has the lawful money? Who has all the gold? And, you know, we go into this a little bit in the book Covenants of the Gods, but... The reality is, is that we've gone past the stage of us personally redeeming ourselves in this society. And that's what was happening at the time of Jesus Christ. The people were unredeemable by their own efforts. And they were going down. It was kind of a pinnacle point, a vortex moment in the history of mankind is when Jesus Christ came. But his redemption... You know, I mean, if you look up the word redemption, redemption is, you know, one of the greatest examples of redemption is when Exodus took place. That's what Exodus was about. The redemption of the people. By God. Through Moses. Why? Because Moses was the rightful heir to the throne of Egypt. When he said, let my people go, when he left, he left with Egyptians as well as Israelites. He didn't just leave with Israelites. Because all the people belong to Moses. Because he was the rightful heir. But he said, just like Abraham. If you look for these parallels, you find patterns. 
Abraham said, no, you keep the stuff. I, I don't want one buckle of the stuff to the king of Sodom, which was another one of these wimpy economies that don't strengthen the poor, but actually weaken the poor. These economies based on legal charity and often borrowing against the future. And th- their whole, you know, city was invaded and they took away all kinds of gold and they took away all kinds of precious things and they took away all kinds of people. And Abraham freed the people because he had set up a system of altars. But those altars weren't about burning up sheep. This is this is what is staring us in the face. Men aren't going to risk their lives because they burn up sheep together. They're going to risk their lives because they've created the social bonds, the social fabric of a society where the people actually have cultivated a care for one another. And if if Abraham is going to risk his life to save his nephew and other people, they will join with them and risk their lives and everything they have. Because if without your life you have nothing to save the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who are being hauled away as slaves to this, these other people. And they go and in one night they defeat them. Because something else is going on. Something else in the law of nature is going on that accompanies them in their battle against the tyranny that has come. But if you are a tyrant, if you are constantly coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority, if you are a little tyrant desiring with a habit of receiving benefits at the expense of others, when the tyrants come and invade, you will not have the protection of God the divine will of God behind you. And you will be devoured. Which is why in the New Testament they tell you, be careful you do not bite one another lest ye be devoured. And that, of course, is what has happened. And that that is part of that Leviathan staring back at you from the abyss that nobody wants to look into, which is the abyss of our own hearts. For a hundred years, Americans have been coveting their neighbor's goods through the exercising authority of their governments that they keep electing. And and it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. You're both in this free fall plummet towards destruction. Because you've all engaged in covetous practices, desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And you've all gone back into the bondage of Egypt. Or you don't just owe 20%. It's become grievous. And now the other shoe is about to drop. Well, the value of the the stuff posing as money, which is, you know, your credit notes and your credit entries in your bank accounts, which you don't even see your money. It doesn't even exist. It's all digital currency. Already, you know, People people talk about uh, cashless society. In the 1800s, notes were not called cash. Notes were, they when they said cash only at the register or at the counter, 
They meant gold or silver or copper or brass. They didn't mean notes. Notes were not cash by definition. Change the definition, change the set of the mindset of the people. People are worried about a cashless society. You already have a cashless society. You're now going to a digital cashless society. You're already in a paper cashless society, a credit entry cashless society. And all the problems, all the problems of the world today, economic problems, health problems, uh, nutritional problems, emotional problems, they all stem back from the fact that we're not paying attention to what Moses was actually setting up. He wasn't setting up altars to burn up sheep. Those offerings were like the votive offerings. Objects deposited without the intention of recovering or using them again for your personal benefit. They were burnt up to you. That's a simple concept. But people don't want to see it. Just the same as so many Jews today don't want to see that the same word that they translate into leaven also means cruelty, oppression. And we'll see that with a lot of these other words. But we are going to go through Exodus 40. We'll do it step by step. And we can probably get to it fairly quickly. It mentions a, a, a lot of different things like the lampstand and the sweet incense and the offered offerings and these things in that single chapter. And uh, it has 38 verses to it, so it's not going to be difficult to get through. But there are layers. We need to understand that these words, everything from the tabernacle to garments, there's several words in the Hebrew language for garments. This particular one they use also can mean treachery. <laughs> so it's a, the, these garments aren't special uniforms that give you power. And this in their episode 15, they talk a great deal about hierarchies and hierarchies of power. And they actually mention hierarchies of service. But that's what Moses was doing. That's what Jesus was doing. There is rank in the kingdom of God. But it's a hierarchy of service. Not a hierarchy of power of men over men. Who exercise authority one over the other. That's what you've created with your constitution, but your constitution is not in conformity to the constitution that is laid out by Moses in Deuteronomy. Which they, they're, they're going to get into Deuteronomy. It'll be interesting if they get into that section of Deuteronomy 17 that talks about what you need to write down in your constitution. They talked about in episode 15 about having to write down a constitution. But they don't seem to see the limits because they're on the wrong side of the river. But we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so we'll get right into uh, Exodus 40, which uh, the first ten verses are about setting up for business is telling the people to set up for business with the tabernacle. Now again, tabernacle's a very tiny little 
building. And again, uh, you'll see numerous people suggesting that there were over 600,000 people there that were a part of this construction of the tabernacle. Now, 600,000 people with their flocks have to be scattered out quite a bit. There's got to be shepherds way out, away, uh, spread out. And eventually, when they come into the promised land, even though the tabernacle moves around, many people never see it on a day-to-day basis. If you're giving your first fruit offering, which is, you know, the first male born of a ewe, lamb, that's got to go to God. First fruit's got to go to God. Or a calf, or you know, the first, you know, 10% of the oil you pressed out of your olive orchard, or whatever it is. The first drink offering. We'll get into that eventually. Uh, which could be wine. Now, they're not growing a lot of grapes where they're at now. They're traveling around. It takes years to set that up. Eventually, they'll be doing that in the promised land. But... That's not, that's not really happening yet. But how in the world are all those objects being sent to this little tiny tabernacle and consumed on a regular basis in these conflagrations of burning flesh? And who's getting all the firewood necessary to burn these things up? Wool doesn't burn. You actually put wool on fire to put it out. So, to even imagine that these burnt offerings are all going to go there and get burnt up, to me, is absurd. We're to dress it and keep it. And here, we're supposedly creating this ritualistic of destroying thousands and thousands of animals on a regular basis and just burning up their carcasses. Even the Passover was a meal. People had to share that meal. That was the symbol of the Passover. Now, they understood that. Even at the time of the Pharisees, they understood that all these offerings were not just to be completely burned up. They're certainly the Essenes knew it. The Essenes were taking care of all their social welfare through charity. And this is what early Israel was doing. Going to these altars was going to the priests. And this is what it was said. The setting up the business of the priesthood at the tabernacle of the congregation. But... Everywhere the Levites were priests too. They were a part of the priesthood. They were the firstborn of the nation. There were every family had a priest within the nation, which is usually the firstborn would be the priest within that family, and uh, would carry out some of the duties of the priest within that family. And. Uh, it's a social structure. But we don't understand that anymore because we're all on the wrong side of the river and families are breaking down. And nothing breaks down the families more than legal charity, charity that is provided by compelled offerings. That destroys families. And it certainly has amongst the black community and, and nationwide amongst all the races. It's just that the black communities were... Targeted by people like we said, Cloward and Piven, and others along that same ilk, uh, to buy the votes of the black community. That's what LBJ was trying to do with his war, his great society, his war on poverty. 
he was he was targeting the poor people to get their votes. We'll give you all these benefits. Sign them up. Sign them up. And bankrupt them. Yeah, but sign them up. And but Israel was doing something just the opposite. They were taking care of the needy through these sacrifices. Every every week, every month, every year, and and when they had the feasts, they were told not to leave the tabernacle, uh, leave the Levites empty-handed, because they were the priests in all these communities everywhere. They didn't have any particular territory. They had land, but they held all that land in common because they were in bondage to God. They could not exercise authority one over the other. It wasn't a top-down religion where the either neither Moses nor the Sanhedrin were ruling over the priesthood. He was setting the guidelines, the path, showing them the way. But if you don't understand that Religion is the social safety net of the people. It's supposed to be. And that the job of the priesthood of that tabernacle was to facilitate that social safety net. But it was a social safety net based on charity, upon free will offerings, not compelled offerings. You're going to get a different outcome. You're going to get a different kind of hierarchy. And, and like I just said, the, the, the priests, the Levites were not to exercise authority one over the other. How do we know that? We know that for a lot of reasons, but it goes back to what they missed in the Jordan Peterson seminar way back at the beginning when they talked about unhewn stones. If you don't realize that the priests are the living stones, like they say in the New Testament, they were back then too. They were back then in the days of Abraham. You could not exercise authority. They could not make rules up for each other. They were joint heirs, but they could not regulate the day-to-day choices of those priests. So who does regulate? Well, God does through divine will, which is the law of nature. But sometimes that takes a little while before the wrath of God comes around. But that's to give you the opportunity of saying, I don't think he's doing a good job. I'm not going to contribute to him anymore. I'm going to contribute to this guy who's doing a better job. And and ancient societies knew how this works. But some ancient societies got on the wrong side of the river and forgot how it works. And so... Keeping that in mind, we will read Exodus 40. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and thou shalt put therein the ark of the testimony. The testimony is the Ten Commandments. The ark itself is part of that testimony. And you are to cover the ark with the veil. I didn't throw it over like a piece of canvas, but they covered, they, they had a veil hanging between that ark and everybody else. And thou shalt bring in the table and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it. And thou shalt bring in the candlestick and light the lamps thereof. 
So it's it's like setting up a storefront. He's setting up shop. And of course, all these things that he's putting in there are symbols of what should be going on in the hearts and the minds of the people. But they don't understand that yet. So he gives you these symbols. And they call them sacred symbols. Sacred objects. Because they represent something. They are a metaphor. And and the structure is an allegory of what we should be in our hearts and our minds. Verse 5. And thou shalt set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle. And thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Now see, the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Well, the word tabernacle there is the word tent. And so it's the tent of the tent of the congregation. <laughs> so again, if, if you knew Hebrew, you still wouldn't get this if you're on the wrong side of the river. And it's written... So that you will get it if you listen to the spiritual flowing coming from God all the time. Sometimes people will get little insights. You know, some of God's wisdom will and light will leak through to you in dreams and visions, sometimes in feelings. But there's, there's an opponent out there. There's an adversary out there that is also trying to play with your emotions and play with your feelings. And this is because you've been eating of the tree of knowledge. The more you try to figure out the truth by reading the Bible using your own intellect, the more likely you will be deceived. Because you're you're approaching the Bible... As if the tree of knowledge will give you the answer. When it says, study to show thyself approved in the New Testament. I've pointed this out many times. The word study there is not translated study anywhere else. It's actually the word for be diligent. Be diligent to show thyself approved. Because that is the ultimate study guide is being a doer of the word. How many times did Jesus talk about being a doer of the word? And if you're not a doer of the word, if you're doing iniquity, you're not born again, if you're if you're doing contrary to what Christ said, you're not his followers, you're a worker of iniquity. And of course, we know that to covet thy neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority was forbidden by Jesus Christ, yet almost every Christian religion says that's okay today. And that's a lie. And that's the delusion. That it's okay to force your neighbor through the men you who exercise authority, the men you elect, to force your neighbor to provide you with welfare. That you're not a Christian if you're doing that. Because you're not a follower of Christ. You may be calling yourself a Christian, but it's a, it's a minor Christian. It's a false Christian. It's a Christian in need of repentance. 
because you're engaging in a covetous practice. And you need to repent of that. So, again, they, they set up this altar of the burnt offering. The offering that is burnt up to you. And when we study strange fire and 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 what that means and fire itself, even the word fire. We talk about a fire in your heart. When you have a passion for something. Well, he has a fire in his heart. Uh, it's not actually a flame. So, the burnt offering is an offering that is burnt up to you. You no longer expect to use it anymore. But it's going out to somebody else to bless them. Because that's the character of God. Is he, he, That he did all this to bless other people. And so all the sacrifices of Israel was to bless other people. To cast your bread upon the waters doesn't have anything to do with going out and sailing tortillas across the lake. It's a metaphor. Burnt offering is a metaphor for giving up. That simple. But people keep going back to the trail. Oh, no, no. We have to actually set the sheep on fire and burn up the carcass. We actually have to get a red heifer and and take it outside the camp and burn it up so that there's ashes. Because otherwise, what are we doing with What are the ashes? The burnt sweet incense. What is sweet incense? It's free will incense. Free will giving of incense. Incense is is one of those symbolic things like like leaven. I mean, there there is an incense that you can grind up and make it a certain way and use certain oils and everything and set it on fire and it makes a smoke. And that smoke goes up and people can smell it all around and everything and you can put it in a little sensor. You know, a little golden sensor, brass sensor, and uh, set it on fire and the smoke comes up and it, it permeates throughout the congregation. I've seen that. I've done that. I've lit the sensor. I wasn't burned up, so it must not have been, <laughs> it must not have been strange fire I used. But, uh, it's, it's a symbol. It's a symbol. Where you, you can smell something and it seems sweet to the smell, but it's, it's spiritual. It's, it's symbolizing a spiritual reality. That if you live by free will offerings, it creates a spiritual incense. But if you live by forced offerings, oh, that smoke's going down. That that's going to have a different effect. So, verse seven, and thou shalt set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and shalt put water therein, and thou shalt set up the court round about. Now this is the exterior part round about, and hang up the hangings at the court gates. So there's another wall. They're they're building walls <laughs> to designate partitioning of certain things within society. And thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle. 
and all that is therein, and shalt hollow it, and all the vessels therein, and shall it shall be holy. Holy again is separate. So that's what the wall is, to separate the pattern. You don't need to build a border wall in order to save America. If if you were to be follow, if you were already following Moses and Jesus Christ, there would be absolutely no need for a border wall. You might put up a border wall for some areas, but it really wouldn't be necessary. The more you follow Moses and Jesus Christ, what they were really saying, and get yourself on the spiritual side of the river in that process, because you can't. You can't do what Moses and Jesus were really saying without getting into the spiritual aspect of it. Your your body won't let you do it. You you won't be able to fast from the the wicked iniquities of the world. You will keep going back to them. But if you were doing that, you wouldn't need a wall. Now, what would that look like? Well, you would end all social welfare through the state. There would be absolutely zero social welfare through the states. Which means all your public schools have to be supported by the people through free will offerings. Your fire departments will eventually have to be supported entirely by free will offerings. Wow. Wow. You could, you could have membership offerings. You know, if you're a member of this fire department, because you've paid in a dues, uh, they will give your house priority. <laughs> but of course, if they were smart, they wouldn't do it that way. They'd do it like, like, uh, you can be a member of uh, the helicopter, uh, Air Life, uh, out here. You can pay a s- small amount of money into the, the, the Air Life. And if they have to pick up anybody in your family, any anybody visiting your house or anything, it's free. Because you're a member. Because everybody's paid in a little bit. But if you if you're not a member, they they may charge you twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to come and pick you up. They they don't usually take away your house. <laughs> What they usually do is they waive that if you sign up to be a member. But uh, it's self-supporting. It works. Everybody contributes. And they're members. Well, that's what your church should be. And that's what Moses was setting up. Although they didn't, you know, if you if you owed $100 dues and you only paid $50, you're still covered. Jesus made that rule up very clear. And, of course, that's the same principle we see in in Moses' teachings as well. Because they're free will offerings. You're supposed to give a percentage of what you get. You're supposed to give the first things of your fruit. You know, the first fruits of your uh, flocks and of your trees and of your, your fields. But you're self policing. There was no IRS agents. There was no Gabi Molkai yet. There were priests. But they weren't forcing the offerings. Very important. Very important how to understand that. 
So these things are holy. In verse 10 we see, And thou shalt anoint the altars of the burnt offerings and all the vessels, and sanctify the altars, and it shall be an altar most holy. And thou shalt anoint the laver and his foot, and sanctify it. The base. And sanctify it. You know, there's a footstool altar. What is that? That's another whole topic we won't get into right now. But the next section we're starting with verse 12 is what I call garments must be worn. And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. And thou shalt put upon Aaron and uh, the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now, all the Levites are priests, but this is a particular priest's office. And everything that is consumed by the social safety net of Israel is not going to go to the temple first and then back to the people. Certain things are going to go up there. Heave offerings, uh, which then become wave offerings, which we will explain. I don't know anybody who has got that quite right. But, of course, it's difficult to get that right if you don't understand that the altars were a part of a system of social safety net to help take care of the needy of society so you didn't ever have to go to a pharaoh or FDR or Cloward and Piven or LBJ or any of these guys again who will bring you back into the bondage of Egypt because in order to get their benefits, you have to sign up, apply for it, and part of the application will be a portion of your labor. Yeah, that was income tax before Social Security. But the only ones who paid it were fiduciaries of corporations. Because a corporation doesn't have an inalienable right to its labor. And that a corporation, you say it made a million dollars profit. Well... It gets to deduct the wages of the people working at that corporation from the gross profit to get the net profit upon which they have to pay the taxes. Right? Well, if the CEO says that my salary is going to be $999,000... His salary is determined by the profit that the corporation is making. And the corporation's profit is taxable. So now his wages as a fiduciary of the corporation is taxable. So there was income tax way back in 1916. And actually even before that. But it wasn't because of the 16th Amendment. That's, that's a smokescreen. That's, that's, that's not sweet incense. <laughs> but, uh, taxes on labor, of individual labor, you do $100 worth of work and somebody gives you $100, there's no gain. Income taxes is a tax on gain, there's no gain. Well, there is a gain if you've waived a right to a portion of your labor. If you waived a right to a portion of your labor like Israel did when they went into the a bondage of Egypt, they waived a right to 20% of its labor. So now, that 20%, if they kept it, would be profit over their labor, 
over what they put in because they didn't have, well, they don't get to keep it. It goes right to the government. It goes right away to the government. First thing right off the top to the government. And, of course, that's what we see today. That 10%, 20%, 30% of your labor goes right to the government because you're in the bondage of Egypt, which is okay. That's just reality. It may not be okay with you. Maybe it is okay with you. It's certainly okay with the government. It's okay with Pharaoh. It's okay with FDR. Of course, nobody noticed because when income tax was established under Social Security on labor, then you had a portion of your labor go right to the government. But... Social Security payment was only a small percentage, 1.4 or something like that. Tiny little percentage. It's not like it is 14% today or 14 plus. And so only a tiny percentage went to the government. And you had to make $10,000 before you owed any income tax on your income. And $10,000 was enough to buy three homes. So... That wasn't going to go. So nobody noticed. But gradually, they turned up the temperature on the frog in the water, which is you. And now, you're feeling the pain. But it's still where you are. Now you need to know what Christ and Moses was really talking about. Which we will return to when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in the section on garments must be worn, there's special garments that we saw woven, and I talked a little bit about that uh, back in Exodus 28 and and 39. And uh, one of the interesting things, and, and I, I mentioned the fact that you know they talk about blue and purple and scarlet, and of course some of the some of the word the blue has other meanings. The word purple. Uh, can mean, and scarlet can also mean other things other than those colors. So those colors are representing ideas, including the idea of a loom. Uh, uh, it's the same word for loom in, in one, uh, one of those colors. But the reality is, is that, uh, they also make thread out of gold. Now I don't know if they knew how to pull wire but you can pull gold wire, you run it through smaller and smaller holes, and you can pull this fine little thread of gold wire, and they're lacing it, evidently, intertwining it with this linen cloth in their garments. So they literally have a mesh of gold in the cloth of their garments. And this is just for the high priests. And the high priests are the ones who go into the tabernacle. Now, we know that the tabernacle seemed to hold an electrical charge and you couldn't hold it except by staves. You couldn't touch it. Somebody, it started to fall once and somebody touched it and he was struck dead. So, it, it seems to have the properties of a capacitor where it would build up an electrical charge. So, it had some purpose there by which you could communicate with this cloud that 
hovered over it and glowed at night like fire. And it also housed this other stuff. And there is a certain amount of symbolism in all this, but there was a certain amount of reality. The guy who touched it was struck dead. He didn't wear the special shoes. He touched it with his bare hands. He didn't use the 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 rods that they used to carry it with. You know, he, he just touched it directly and he died. And now we have the high priest going in there wearing garments that are woven with thin wires of gold all throughout the garments in multiple layers and all the way to the ground and they have little pomegranate bells that jingle as they touch the ground constantly uh, as they walk around near the ark. <laughs> so, I don't know, you can read all kinds of things into that. I've always said that you do not want to try to build this base on the instructions we see in uh, in Moses. Moses said that the guys who were constructing this were given special wisdom and understanding and uh, you you would want to be one of those guys if you wanted to construct this. But there's but besides the actual practical purpose of some of these things, there was a symbolism in them. So when they go, they're, they're preparing for the priest's office, and they have to wear these garments. And in verse fourteen it says, "And thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them with coats." And thou shalt anoint them, and thou didst anoint their father, and they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. And when we get into Numbers, uh, we will see in different verses uh, where they're talking about picking 70, where Moses is... is Kind of stepping down from his central position. And uh, he is told to pick 70 and bring them to the tabernacle. And they are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And they immediately can go out and start prophesying. This is like what we see at Pentecost with the apostles. Where they they have this glowing light appearing around them and they go out and they have a special power. And Moses is turning over some of that to that Sanhedrin. Now, at that particular time uh, of the early church, there was a Sanhedrin gathering at the tabernacle set up, the temple set up by Herod. But that was defiled by the blood of Zechariah. And John the Baptist was literally the rightful high priest. When we see them putting on these garments on the sons, this is also explaining the structure of the family. That sons were not sui juris until their father passed away. The father was sui juris, but the sons were under the authority of the father. Family is the only corporation that God has created at first until he created this corporation of God, which was calling the Levites out to be the church. They are actually going to belong to God. The Sanhedrin literally belonged to God as well. And the priest class were to belong to God. 
and they were to be an intermediary. But the goal was not to create a hierarchy of authority over the people because this was a hierarchy of service, which we'll get into many, many times in the future. But the reality is is that Moses, uh, you know, he... They, they, they pick these 70 in Numbers 11:16. They pick these 70. In 11:24, he told the people of the words and gathered the 70 of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. But these guys were instantly prophesying and because they were anointed with this Holy Spirit. Now you can't make that happen. That's something that, but you can do a lot of things to prevent that from happening. <laughs> Paul was trying to do some of those things. But uh, when Moses is replaced by these new prophets, you know, he's he's literally stepping down. He's not being demoted. He still has a connection to God, but he doesn't have to carry all the load. The same as we saw with the courts. And that's hotly debated still to this day amongst the Jews, even amongst uh, some of the Christians, that when... Uh, Jethro said to Moses, you know, put other people in charge of these judgments. But it was a good thing because they needed to start exercising responsibility. This wasn't a demotion for Moses to set up the Sanhedrin, the 70. Any more than it was a demotion of Christ when he appointed 70. Which we, we see in the New Testament. That's one of the very first things he did was he appointed a 70. We see it in Luke 10.1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the harvest, uh, uh, the Lord of the harvest, so that it's going to be God's power that brings in the harvest. It's not the laborers. The laborers are few. It's God that's going to make the difference. And he sends them out as lambs amongst wolves, he says, with no extra purse or anything like that. And he gives them all kinds of instructions. But they're actually healing the sick. And uh, this, these 70 going out there is creating waves throughout society. They're healing the sick. They're casting out demons. They're having all this power, uh, not over people, but over the consequences of years and years of going the wrong way. And they're saying that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. That's why they're able to do this. So this is what the 70 were. But understanding that the priesthood has a actual job of main, and we'll see this again with the heave offering and the wave offering, that this upper priesthood at the tabernacle itself, which receives only a small portion of all the sacrifices made throughout Israel, and it's not burning them up, but uh there may be some sacrificial things that they do, but 
you know, where do you draw the line between the metaphor and the practicality of this system of God that is operating by faith, hope, and charity? All the social welfare of Israel, almost all the government services of Israel were provided by the priests through the free will offerings of the people. And most of it was done down in the local communities. And if you don't understand that, you're going to create all kinds of sidetracks that will lead you astray in trying to understand what Moses is really doing. So anyway, the sons wear these coats. They're occupying this priest's office for their anointed anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. The anointing with oil is a symbol of the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon them, like we saw with the 70 in the Sanhedrin. When they had that Holy Spirit, they had power that others, that seemed supernatural, but they're actually natural because the law of nature is divine will. It's just, we think of it as supernatural because we don't understand the nature of the universe. So verse 16, Thus did Moses according to all the Lord commanded him, so did he. So all that that we were reading was what the Lord was commanding, and now Moses is going to do that, and it's going to go down and say, and it came to pass in the first month and the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened its sockets and set up the boards thereof and put the bars thereof and reared up his pillars and he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle. But the covering of the tent above upon it and put the covering of the tent above upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, He's not doing this by himself. We know there are layers and layers. It's very heavy stuff. A lot of guys have to work at this, and they're doing that. But most of the priests throughout these 600,000 people are not constructing it. You couldn't get all those priests around this little tiny tabernacle. Uh, they're probably learning how to do it, but just like the Sanhedrin was going to learn how to do what their, their 70 was going to learn how to do what they're going to do. But that it, it's a process. And he took and put the testimony into the ark and set the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. Now, you know, if this thing is a capacitor and you're having to assemble all this stuff, you, you need to know what you're doing. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so he, he brought the ark, and, and which we see him saying that he's doing in verse 21. He says he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil covering and covered the ark and the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the table in the tent. So he's doing all the stuff that God just told him to do. And so this, it seems so redundant. Why are you, we, why did you say you, you did all the stuff according to what God said? Because he's trying to show you that he's, he's a doer of the word of God. We have to become doers of the word of God. And, and he's being very detailed into it. 
and explaining that, yeah, and, and he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses and he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against the table and the side of the tabernacle southward. So he's doing all this stuff. That's all symbolic. But one of the biggest messages we can get from this is that Moses is doing what God is telling him to do. The question is, are you doing what God is telling you to do? And is it God telling you to do it? Are you hearing the voice of God? And and that's partly what I was getting to back there when Moses was supposedly being replaced by these Sanhedrin. And somebody says, tell them to stop prophesying. You're the prophet. But in Numbers 12.3, we see now the man Moses was very meek above all men which were upon the face of the earth. So that is extremely important that we understand that. But he doesn't see this Sanhedrin. These needed to be meek men as well. And and known to him. And so in Numbers 11.29, when somebody does, you know, say that to stop these men, and Moses said unto that man, Enviest thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? Which is what? Jesus is saying he wants to write his laws upon your heart and your minds, which we see in Hebrews and we see in Jeremiah. This is the ultimate goal. Well, that doesn't happen overnight necessarily. You have to begin to take back your responsibilities. And through the power of choice that God has bestowed upon you, endowed you with, you have to tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Every Christian should want to be doing jury duty, but doing jury duty with their Christian conscience. Not swearing oaths that you will decide this case based on the laws of the legislature, but based upon the law of God written in your heart and your mind. But every juror today goes up there and waives their right to decide fact and law and attend to the weightier matters in order to sit on the jury. They they can't compel you to take that oath. If they know you don't want to take that oath, they'll do everything they can to not pick you <laughs> to be on that jury. I've told that story before. But you don't have to. They can't compel an oath. An oath compelled. But see, to say we're not going to give you any benefits. We're going to cut you off. We're going to cut you off from our altars, which are idolaters' altars, if you don't bow down and swear a votive offering that you will put your right to choose on our altar and we will choose for you. That's what's going on. But that's not what Moses is doing. Moses is empowering the people as they are able to be empowered. And of course, all the people of Israel are empowered to make free will offerings. 
That's why they call it a free will offering. They are able to support the government through charity. They are the keepers of the treasury of Israel, which is in the pockets of the people. But you've all cast your gold and silver in the cities where you go, in the streets of the cities where you go. You don't, you don't have a right to the value of the gold, if you had any gold in your pocket, you don't have a right to the value of that gold. You don't have a right to that. You've, you've waived it. You've given it up in order to get the benefits of the federal government, of the Pharaoh's federal government. And that's why you're back in the bondage of Egypt. But it's worse now. And it's getting worse and worse. Because you're, you've developed an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them at the expense of others. From the property of others. It, it's pervasive now. It was just, you know, most public schools originally were supported by free will offerings. By charity. They were public schools. They were open to the public. But they were supported a lot of times by churches. And by free will offerings. And by tuition. But if you couldn't afford the... T- Even Harvard. And Yale. If you couldn't afford... You could go there for free. If you could keep up the grades. So, But people don't understand that. They've, they've lost sight of that. They've gotten solely on the wrong side of the river. The river's still going by. They still have emotions. They still have feelings. But they're not coming from God. They're coming from the tree of knowledge and from their own imagination. Because the God they worship is from their imagination. It's not the God that Moses is talking about. So they, they brought the ark into the, into the tabernacle. And they, they put the candlesticks in the tent in the, uh, of the congregation over against the table on the southward side. And he lighted lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put a golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. Lighted lamps. Is that a metaphor for setting up the Sanhedrin? That he brought to the temple and they were all lit up? Is that, were the original Christians lamps coming out at Pentecost? Lamps of the light of God? Is that why they used to like to set Christians on fire? You know, when the riots took place in Rome and they tried to blame everything on the Christians? You know, Nero's fire in Rome? One of the the tortures of the Christians were they would set them on fire and burn them. Yeah, there's a lot. And and that brings us to this idea of strange fire. But we won't go into that now because we're going to try to finish this. But we have to understand that to put this golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit entering into you. The tent is nothing. The Holy Spirit entering into your hearts and your minds is everything. And he burnt sweet incense thereon, 
as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set up hanging at the door of the tabernacle. Verse 29, and he put the altar of the burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle. All this is what he was told to do. And attended the congregation and offered upon the burnt offering. The meat offering, as the Lord commanded. We'll see, meat offering can also include grain. Grain offering, uh, it translated in some Bibles, is translated from the same word, meat offering. So, when... When John the Baptist was asked how did the kingdom of God work, he, he told you this simple little statement. You have two coats and your neighbor doesn't have one. Share. Give one to your neighbor. That's how it works. And then he says, do the same in meats. Does that mean you don't do the same in grain? <laughs> Just in meat? No, it's just a word that means either meat, grain, provisions. See, Nimrod had provisions. He was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. They say hunter, but that word hunter that they translate into hunter is almost everywhere else it's translated into some sort of word that means provider or provisions or uh, victuals or, you know, venison. It's, it's supplying you with something to eat. It's taking Nimrod had a mighty system of social welfare. But he did it by force contributions. Cain did it by force contributions. He plowed the Adama. But Christ does not. Moses does not. He doesn't burn them all up either. He provides for the needy. And there had to have been a lot of needy among 600,000 people. Elderly people, people dying, people crippled. They all had to be helped. And you needed to have people that helped them. I remember when in forced marches in the military when guys would fall behind. I mentioned this recently. Uh, you, you, you might end up carrying one guy carrying his pack and another guy carrying his gun. You're carrying your gun, your pack, and this guy's gun. <laughs> And you're making the same arduous trip. And another guy's carrying his pack and his gun and this guy's pack. And then we would actually have two other guys come up behind them, put their arm under their shoulders and help them hobble along because they actually had fractures in their knees from running. They actually, we had guys fracture their own knees in running and they just made them keep running. Of course, the next day their knee was as big as a melon. But uh, what they were teaching them is how to take care of one another. How to sacrifice for one another. How to become a band of brothers. This is what Moses is doing on a national scale with the burnt offerings. He's not burning them up. He's funding the welfare of Israel to take care of all the needy. You bet you a lot of people had shin splints and fractured knees from walking down the wadi. And crossing the desert. They're having lots and lots of problems. And they need help. Who's helping them? The priests. That's their job. I don't know what your priests are doing in your church. But if they're not running the social safety net of your society. They aren't priests of Moses nor of Jesus Christ. 
There you may have strong swelling words, but they're delivering you into bondage because your priests are down at the welfare office. Your priests are down at the social security office. That's where your priests are. And they're not anointed by the God of heaven, the God of life. They're anointed by the gods of power. And you have built a hierarchy of power, not a hierarchy of service. Which they go into in their episode 15, and we will go into again. So, we're down to verse 29, verse 30. They got this laver outside, the, just like he said. And... Uh, And Moses and Aaron in verse 31 and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat. Jesus was washing feet back there. We'll return to Kings of the Kingdom in a moment. So welcome back to the Kings of the Kingdom. So in verse 31, Moses and Aaron are washing their hands and their feet. And whenever they went into the tent of the congregation, or when they just came near the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he he reared up the court around about the tabernacle and altar and set up hanging at the court, so Moses finished the work. So the work is basically finished, but I started to explain a little bit Jesus washed the feet of his apostles. Now, of course, that's often preached as an act of humility. He's washing the feet. That was the lowest position, usually, of a servant in a household was to wash the feet. And when, But it, it's a deeper meaning than that. The dirt that you're washing off the feet, which is a process of washing the feet, is the dirt that is accumulated from where you've been. It's it's washing the dirt off of you from where you have been already. Because you, you go lots of places and you've been lots of places and you have to wash the feet. And it was interesting that, you know, the story is is that this woman of the city that some people suggest is a harlot washes the feet of Jesus Christ. Well, she really wasn't a harlot. <laughs> and that's not what that meant. But she was, her reputation had come into ill repute. And, uh, but that's another whole story and we won't go into all that. And that was right. That the, which is symbolic of the church, the church in the wilderness and the church established by Jesus Christ. And the word church there is the called out. The, the Levites were called out by Moses, and the apostles and the 70 were called out by Jesus Christ. So they're the church, they're the called out. To be a hierarchy of service, not to be a hierarchy of authority, not to tell you what you have to believe and what you have to do and what you don't have to do. Now, anybody, you can tell me anything you want. You think I, I should do this, you can tell me that I should do this. And, and that guy over there who I don't even know, he can tell me what I should do. That's freedom of speech. I don't have to do it. I have to do what God is telling me to do. And in order to get to that place where I can hear God, I may have to come near the altar of God. 
the habitation of God. Come near God himself. And one of the ways to draw you near is sacrifice. You lay down your life daily in sacrifice, in charity, in free will offerings for others that God created in hopes that they live. And this may draw you near to God. But you may have to get your feet washed from time to time (laughs) from where you've been. It's a process. And this is what, every time you go out, you may have to get your feet washed when you come back. And so, this is what this is symbolic of. So, first you have to gather together. You have to start taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. You have to start loving your neighbor and even your enemy as yourself. And you may have to wash one another's feet. In other words, you may have to go and say, you know, you really shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and you may be right. And maybe you're wrong. And if you're wrong, hopefully he will say, you really shouldn't have told me I shouldn't have done that because I really should have done it. <laughs> And this is the process of washing one another. Washing one another's feet. As, and, you, you, of course, you need freedom of speech to do that. And, of course, since the whole world is on the wrong side of the river and following after the adversaries of God, they want to end free speech. So you can see you can see those dynamics going along. And even I, I saw Ben Shapiro advocating laws that you couldn't say certain things against Israel. I don't, I don't know exactly the specifics of the law, but they're, they're against free speech when it comes to criticizing Israel. You can't do that. That's contrary to the ways of Moses. You have to be able to speak your... Don't you want to know who hates you? (laughs) I think hate speech is great because now I know who hates me. Go ahead. Tell me you hate me. That's fine. And now everybody else knows you hate me. Go ahead. Say, Speak your mind with freedom. And let... Everybody make the choices themselves. But eventually you may have to have your feet washed. (laughs) So anyway, verse 34 starts another whole section, the cloud covered. And it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So something, when that was over there, the glory of the Lord, the honor of the Lord, the power of the Lord, Filled the tabernacle. So, exactly what's going on there, I can't really tell you. But it's significant. But it's not much different than the Holy Spirit filling the apostles at Pentecost. And it's very clear that Moses wishes everybody of Israel to be filled with the light of prophecy that you saw in those selected 70 who were selected out of 600,000 people. That's insignificant. 70 guys. What are they going to do? But it's important. They have a place. And hopefully every one of those 70 could pick another 70. And the light would come into everybody as a matter of that process. And that's what 
Moses was setting up is a system whereby that process would be facilitated. And that's what your priests should be doing, facilitating that process. And they're not. Instead, they're saying, you go to the men who exercise authority one over the other if you want any benefits. We're just here to praise God and to worship the Lord. But provide little or no services except the most token of services. No wonder the church is in trouble. Because the church is not the church established by Jesus Christ. It's something else. It's it's a feel-good thing. Verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Not just the ark, but the whole tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. So this is they're following this cloud, which is a cloud by day, but fire by night. And it says that in verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Throughout all their journeys. But we don't, where, what happened to it when they came into the promised land? Uh, was it around for a little while? Did it go away? Who knows? Well, there, there is inference to it. But basically, like I say, verses 1 through 10, even into 11, is setting up for business. Uh, they have to set up the laver for washing people outside. That's still in a closed area. They have to put on the holy garments with their little lace threads of gold and, in it and everything. And uh, they're preparing this tabernacle, which is this little tiny structure for 600,000 people spread out over miles and miles and miles of terrain. And so in verse 27, we see burn sweet incense. And of course, that word sweet, we will study that in more detail when we study offerings, you know, the grain offerings, your meat offerings, your drink offerings. What are drink offerings? And uh, why are they so important? And, and, and that actually may be a very strong part of strange fire. Because, which we won't go into, I don't think we even have enough time to go into it. But, these things are all interrelated and you have to kind of see all of them. And I I can't read all of it at one time and put it all in my head at one time. I'm just, actually I get very quiet. I wake up early in the morning. I come in here and my fingers just type away. <laughs> and then I go out and do other work, um, which I have to do. I cannot, I cannot stay in here all day, although I have stayed in here all night sometimes. <laughs> But all these offerings have a meaning, but the critical thing is they're all free will offerings. Until we get to uh, the Nedar uh, offerings under Solomon, which uh, are some call votive offerings. They may not have been free will offerings, but we'll explore that later. In verse 33, the courts and the gates and finishing the work. And then this 36 and 38. Uh, this vessel was over the tabernacle. 
this cloud by day and fire by night uh, didn't move. They didn't move. They followed it. And they were setting up understanding. That's what you have to do. You have to have the light of that cloud in your heart and in your mind. The light, that, that glory that came into the tabernacle in your heart and your mind. And that will move you only. Nothing will move you but that. That is what you have to be moved by. But in order to turn that on, you have to start caring about others as much as you care about yourself. You have to... God gave us free will. You have to give free will to your neighbor. When you create legal systems of social welfare where men who exercise authority force the offerings of the people, you are biting a portion of the free will that God gave your neighbor and you're you're taking it from him. Now, you may all mutually choose to do that and consent to have one purse, but we know that runs towards death because Proverbs tells us that. Well, you may sit and eat with rulers and you may be a man of appetite and you shouldn't be. And if you do that, you should even put a knife to your own throat, according to Proverbs. It tells us that. So, a social safety net through men who exercise authority is the key to going back to the bondage of Egypt. Again, being entangled a little bit at a time, maybe at first, but entangled again in that yoke of bondage. But it will also dim your eyes so that you cannot see what you should be doing. And eventually, who knows, you might inject yourself with poison. (laughs) You might eat poison and not know it. And, but if you have the Holy Spirit in you, it can actually counteract the effects of poison. But in order to get to that place, you may have to wash one another's feet. You may have to start taking care of one another through a social safety net of love instead of a social safety net of force and violence. Through through a welfare system of compassion and caring. That's what the church is supposed to be. If If your social welfare is coming from men who exercise authority one over the other, you're you're probably not in the kingdom of God. You're in some other kingdom. And you're probably not free. And you're not going to be free. Because you won't set your neighbor free. You say, well, I paid in. I want to get it. But you can't get anything except what you take away from. Well, you're not even taking away from your neighbor now. You're taking away from your your children's future. Because you're borrowing against their future. Because you haven't kept the Sabbath in, in a month of Sabbaths. <laughs> you, you simply do not keep the Sabbath if you're in debt by trillions and trillions of dollars. You've done the opposite. You, you've gone back into the bondage of Egypt. And you don't even know it. And it's it's amazing because, I mean, the commandments of Moses forbid this covetous practice, which Colossians says is idolatry. And yet, everybody covets their neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority. David said it was, such systems of welfare would be a snare. And, and Paul quotes David. 
Peter warns that it'll make you merchandise and curse your children. And it already has done that. Because you have been the unfaithful. You say you believe. But you've returned to the mire. You have put back on the yoke of bondage. It felt okay back in the 50s. Wasn't so bad. 60s, 70s, now 80s, 90s. Now we're 2023. It's getting a little rough. And it's going to get rougher. Because you've been under a strong delusion. A false religion. And you believed a lie. And your conscience was seared. With a psychosis. That it's okay. To take from your neighbors. And covet your neighbor's goods. As long as you do it through government. And we've been listening to that lie for a hundred years. And a hundred years we've been in bondage. Well, at least ninety years we've been in bondage. To some degree, we've been in bondage longer than that. But uh, the bondage has become grievous. Because the modern Christian and the modern Jew are as deluded as all the masses. Because they... Now the question is, will you repent? Will you turn about? Will you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What Jesus was preaching. What you see the early church doing. Constantine's church didn't do this. A little bit. Constantine was the high priest of the Roman Empire. At least for a little while there. I mean, Augustus was. Julius Caesar was a before he was a general, he was a priest. We explained that. He'd go to preparing you, look up Julius Caesar. And, and, and Augustus Caesar was called the son of God. And they had to burn incense. Had to burn incense in the temple yearly, once a year. Stating that Augustus Caesar was the son of God. And then people come along and they're calling Jesus the son of God. What was the difference? Augustus' offerings were compelled, forced, legal charity. Free bread and circuses, but legal charity. Now, most of the, the people who paid that at first were people like the Teutons, eventually the Jews, because they were sold into slavery when they were dispersed. Uh, I said the Teutons, the Gauls before the Teutons. But... Uh, now the whole world has gone back into slavery in the bondage of Egypt. And you have the, what was the head of New Zealand said, if you did not hear it from the government, it's not true. <laughs> wow, who's God now? <laughs> you know, some, sometimes, you know, uh, the orcs are running <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> Evidently, the, they won. So, um, anyway... Uh, we need to turn about our thinking. That's what repentance is. It's thinking a different way. It starts seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, which is a system of social welfare through faith, hope, and charity. It, it is a moral people who do not covet their neighbor's goods to the men who exercise authority one over the other. Because Jesus said that we were not to do that. We, we were not to do that in any way, shape, or form. But... Uh, you know, and, and again, back, you know, I said Colossians, you know, it says, talks about 
this idea of idolatry. Uh, covetousness is idolatry in Colossians 3.5. Covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. That's what's coming, the wrath of God. The consequences of going against the will of God. The will of God is right reason. The will of God is the law of nature. That if you bite one another, you will be devoured. But you can even go into Ephesians. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, and of course, the true church is the bride of Christ, and Constantine was a whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, a covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So if you covet your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority, desire benefits from men who are in debt, can only provide you with benefits that they take away from your neighbor, you are an idolater. You are not a Christian. But that's the good news. Because you now hear it in the context of Christ and Moses, and you can repent and come together and start forming congregations. But it's up to you. Nobody's going to do it for you. And then, you know, nobody's going to build it, and then you get to come. Because you're the building blocks of where you need to go. You're the stones of the temple. You're the clay and the mortar of the temple. Your love is what binds people together with the social bonds of Christ. But you have to practice that. You have to walk that walk. Now you're going to stray now and then. That's why you need to have your feet washed now and then. (laughs) Get some of that gunk off. Because we've all been a little covetous. We've all been a little bit of horror mongers. I mean, the false church, the beast is ridden by horror. That horror is the church that says it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods. Too many who exercise authority. That's why she's on a beast. She's riding on the back of that beast and she gives that beast power. Because she says, everybody do what the beast says. Because the beast will give you your free bread at the expense of your neighbor and the expense of your children at the expense of your liberty. But they'll give you free bread. But that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Because that's covetous. 1 Corinthians 5.10 Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or with idolaters Covetous are idolaters. For then must ye need go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater, all the same, interchangeable, or even a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, all the same, with such and one not, no, not to eat. You're not to be eating with them. But you're going to need to eat. You're going to need to take care of one another. You can only do this if you gather together and set up the tables of the Lord. Their tables are a snare. Paul says that. Proverbs says that. Uh, Moses says that. 
I mean, he explains to you, I mean, in Genesis, how you got into bondage. It's because you desired what somebody else had. Of course, now he said, give me your future, 20% of your labor, and I will give you a hamburger today. (laughs) I'll give you bread today. But that's the opposite of keeping the Sabbath. That's why Christ, that's why Moses emphasizes the Sabbath so much. Because not keeping the Sabbath is what got you into bondage. Not working first and earning. Of course, the the Israelites, the, the brothers, they went into bondage because they sold their brother into bondage. You're in bondage because you sold your brothers into bondage to the men who exercise authority. Because you all decided to have one purse. You want to be free, set your brother free. If you want to set your brother free, you're going to have to create the alternative. And Moses was, and Abraham and Jesus Christ was teaching you the alternative. Which is a network of people who come together with love in their heart and charity in their actions. Because love and charity are the same thing. Love is not a, a feeling or a fancy. It's an action. It's it's a power. It's a utility. In order to strengthen the golden threads in your own heart, you need to practice that love. That practice that giving. In a way that strengthens the poor. Don't just throw $20 bills or $100 bills at people or $50 bills at people. You need to give it to those who you think are really doing what Moses was saying, what the Lord was saying to Moses, what Christ was saying as the Lord. You need to be strengthening your neighbor through those prophets of God who are actually doing the will of the Father. Now that I have explained to you what the will of the Father is, is that you you don't eat one another, but... Maybe occasionally fast, so that you can become a part of the righteous ways of God. Till then, peace on your house, and God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.